Uh, good morning. It's a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you this morning, both those of you who are here and those of you who are watching at home. Special shout out to my daughters, Katie and Hannah, in Wisconsin and central Pennsylvania, watching Dad this morning. I love you guys. It's a privilege to be here and sharing with you this morning. Pastor John is away with his family for the weekend, and as they say, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Since he's not here, we can talk about him. I did want to begin this morning by saying I've been especially blessed by the recent sermons in Philippians that John has preached, found them to be excellent expositions of the text, but also very personally challenging to my own life and sanctification. Pastor John's engage yourself questions have been insightful and thought-provoking, and I pray they've yielded fruit in all of our lives. When he asked us a few weeks ago what we need to forget and move on from that is hindering our walk with Jesus, and what are the things that distract us from running the race with focus, I felt a strong sense that he was talking right to me. And as I looked around the room, I felt a sense that many others were feeling that way too and were strongly moved by his challenge. So I thank him for the way that he's been preaching in recent days. He's since asked us what sorts of things cause us anxiety. What keeps us from experiencing God's peace? Why is it so difficult for us to rejoice always? I'm very grateful for Pastor John's recent messages and believe they're among the most powerful sermons he's preached since he's been here as our pastor. And I want to commend him for his work and preparation and his thoughtful application to each of our lives. Next week, Pastor John will be finishing our series in Philippians. So as we turn our attention now to chapter 4, Philippians, verses 10 through 13. Let me ask God to help us in our endeavor this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is good. Your word is true and lovely, beautiful. I pray that your word through the Holy Spirit would come to each of our hearts this morning. Use me simply as an instrument that the Spirit can use to challenge us to walk more like Jesus to live more like the Jesus we read about in chapter 2. I pray that you would give me strength and help and be with all those who hear, that you'd help them to listen well and to take away the truths that you would have for them this morning. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you have your bulletin, the verses that we're covering are on the one side. On the other side is an outline. For this morning, if you're not note-takers, can I encourage you maybe just to do this, if nothing else? If you're not into taking notes, how about if you just at least write down every Scripture passage that I mention? Go back to it. Read it. Look over it. That might be better than what I'm about to say in the next 40 minutes, to just spend that time with God's Word. As human beings, we seem to enjoy positive, inspiring, pithy sayings. We put them on our walls. 
We post them on social media. They're found on our refrigerator doors and the bumpers of our cars. Advertisers are aware of this penchant of ours and seek to find slogans and mottos and jingles that we'll remember and find inspiring. With the hope, of course, that their inspiration will cause us to want to buy their product. See if you recognize any of these positive sayings and slogans. Be all that you can be. Hey, Pete knows this one, right? Many of you all do as well. That is the Army slogan, right? Yet that motto tries to get one to enlist by claiming that the Army can help you reach your full potential. All in all, not a bad slogan. Here are three inspiring slogans from the same company. Impossible is nothing. I want, I can. Infinite possibilities. I don't know if anybody knows that one. That would be Adidas. These slogans go well beyond the realm of positivity into the world of exaggeration and downright silliness. In the real world, there are many things that are impossible for us, and there are many things we want that we just cannot have or may not even be good for us to acquire. Our possibilities are definitely finite. Under Armour has a slogan, I will what I want. What is it about sports apparel companies that bring about these self-absorbed ditties? This sort of thing is not just a result of our modern consumer culture, though. You can find sayings like these that are quite old. Here's one that we hear far too commonly. You can do anything you set your mind to. That's downright silly. This week, I'm going to set my mind to running a mile in five minutes. Now, as a former athlete, I am aware of this tendency in my thinking. The older I get, the better I was. <laughs> but even in my prime, I couldn't run a mile in five minutes. Maybe six, but not five. Today, I'm happy to walk a mile in 15. Setting my mind to running a mile in five minutes will not change the fact that this is physically impossible for me now, and no amount of positive thinking will change that fact. It is simply not true that I can do anything I set my mind to doing. By the way, does anyone know the person to whom that quote is attributed? How about Benjamin Franklin? I told you not all these were new things. Philippians 4.13, the culmination of our passage today, contains one of the most well-known Christian mottos. And I would surmise that this verse hangs on the wall in quite a number of Christian homes. This morning, we want to make sure that we understand its true meaning. So let's dive into the text that lead, and the verses that lead up to verse 13 and provide the proper context 
for understanding what it really means to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In your outline, you'll notice that my first point has to do with verse number 10 and is called partnership appreciated. Paul begins this last section of his epistle exactly where he began the epistle, with an appreciation for the partnership he, he felt with the people from the Philippian church. In many ways, this can be regarded as the first reason for Paul writing this letter in particular, to thank them for their gift and to rejoice over the fact that their gift to him was evidence of their friendship and partnership in the gospel. For those of you who have heard some of my sermons before, you know that as a teacher, I often leave you with homework. I'm going to mention your homework here. Now, you don't need to turn this assignment into me. It will not be graded, but I would encourage you to take time to compare Philippians 1, 3 through 11, the first section of the epistle, with Philippians 4, 10 through 20, the last section of the epistle. As you look at those sections together, try to search for common words. Try to search for common themes. In the Greek, there are actually eight common words in those passages. Verse 10 begins with Paul bursting into joy. He greatly rejoiced at the thought of their love and support. Okay? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Paul was greatly joyous, bursting into joy at the thought of their love and support. And the way that this support manifested itself in such a tangible way as they're sending a gift to him. Think of the joy that you've experienced in seeing someone you love for the first time in a long time. Picture that in your mind. This kind of joy is written on a person's face. This kind of joy comes with real tokens of affection, hugs, kisses, tears of joy. This is the joy Paul is expressing here and probably involved, yes, the joy of seeing Epaphroditus again for the very first time in a long time and his bringing the Philippian gift to him. The phrase, in the Lord, again appears, one of Paul's favorite phrases, reminding us that Paul's bond of love with the Philippians is a three-way bond. It's the kind of love that's spoken of in Ecclesiastes 4.12, when it says that a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Paul, the Philippians, and Christ. The rest of verse 10 seems to indicate that it had been a while since the church at Philippi had been able to minister to Paul in this particular way. We do not know how much time had elapsed between their gifts to him. The Greek word here literally means to blossom again. For those of you who enjoy gardening and might have a green thumb like my mom, it is as if the perennials are again in bloom. After a period of dormancy, 
The Philippians are now able to minister to Paul again. We should remember that the church at Philippi was a part of the Macedonian churches that Paul had commended in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9 for their extreme generosity. Paul specifically mentioned in these passages their extreme poverty that made their generosity so impressive. So it may be that it was just not possible for them to send anything along to Paul. Whatever the reason, Paul doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't even blame them. He simply states that for a time, they hadn't had the opportunity to show their love for him in the particular way of sending along a financial gift. Verses 11 and 12, I've placed under the heading qualifiers in cultural context. What does that mean? In verses 11 and 12, Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. There are several aspects of the culture in which the Philippians lived that might be good for us to understand in light of Paul's words in verses 11 and 12. The first aspect of culture was the Greco-Roman idea of giving and receiving. Pastor John reminded us in the introductory sermons that as a Roman colony, status was very important to the people of Philippi. When someone gave a gift, the giver of the gift was seen to be socially superior to the one receiving the gift. So it was common to reciprocate by giving a gift of equal value to the one received. This would maintain the status of each of the parties. When Paul opens verse 11 by saying that he was not speaking of being in need, he was trying to keep the Philippians' gift in a Christ-centered or Christ-focused context rather than in the context of this way of approaching giving and receiving gifts that their culture emphasized. Paul was trying to say that their gift to him, because it wasn't because he really needed it, their gift to him was not going to shape in any way his relationship with them one way or the other. His joy was in their friendship, not in their gift. Okay? Because what he could secure from them or had received from them was not even something he felt he really needed. This seems to maybe explain best why Paul thanks them in such a roundabout way instead of directly. I don't know if that thought ever crossed your mind here. If Paul's, if Paul's thanking them, where are the words thank you? I mean, it seems a strange way to thank them, right? We all know what it means for a person to apologize without ever saying, I'm sorry, right? And you kind of go, was that really an apology without the words, I'm sorry? Is this really thankfulness without the words, thank you? 
I think Paul was really doing it, uh, really working hard to trying to make sure that they understood that he loved them because of their partnership with him and not because of what they had sent along. Paul's joy was not that of a poor man whose needs have been met, but of a man loved by a church whose friendship gave him reason for great joy. Paul sought to thank them while avoiding the social conventions of gift giving and reciprocity that true Christian love undermines. You see, a real spirit of Christ will undermine this sense that, well, well, they gave me this, I better give them something in return. And if I give them something in return, it's even bigger than what they gave me. Real Christ-likeness destroys all of that type of thinking. You see, true Christian love and generosity, they give without any thought to receiving something in return. That's true Christian love and gift giving. The second aspect of culture that helps explain Paul's words in these verses was the prevalence of Stoic philosophy taught by men such as the Roman philosopher Seneca. Gordon Fee in his commentary states that Paul's words in these verses make it look like a meteor has fallen from the Stoic sky into his epistle. So let me talk to you a little bit about what Stoic philosophy is. In Stoic philosophy, contentment is found in virtue, and virtue is found within oneself, independent of others. Virtue and contentment lie in mastering one's fears and emotions so that a person becomes indifferent to whatever life throws at them. This philosophy has had its influence ever since Paul's time because it often resembles true contentment and it does in some ways allow a person to live a life free from the emotional roller coaster, often accompanying one's life circumstances. To quote Seneca, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. For the Stoic, no circumstance, no person can cause distress to me or give me peace, since the virtuous person lives above such things in their self-sufficiency. All right, this is the Hakuna Matata philosophy of the first century, for those of you who enjoy The Lion King. This is the c'est la vie attitude of the Roman world. In verses 11 and 12, Paul describes his contentment as not something that came from within him, but something taught from without by God. It is not a philosophy he had adopted, but was the result of his becoming like Jesus, as described in chapter 2. Paul had learned through his trials to be content in difficult circumstances. He was content when he was brought low, when he was humbled. He was content when he was hungry. He was content when he was in need. Paul's first word here, this humbling, is not a word one would have thought of to describe a physical need and it's certainly one the Stoics would have abhorred. They might have prided themselves in their lack of earthly wealth, 
but they certainly would not have viewed humility as something to be desired. Paul's times of want are clearly documented in the New Testament. Again, if you're writing these things down, there are four separate lists of hardships that Paul recounts in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 11. These lists included such things as being hungry and thirsty, being homeless, being beaten, being imprisoned, being stoned, being shipwrecked, being robbed. Trust me, if you know these scriptures, that's a very small portion of the list of Paul things, the hardships that he had endured because of his commitment to preaching the gospel. So you can read these things for yourself and see the extent to, to which Paul truly knew troubles of any kind. He had experienced want. Now we don't have in the New Testament nearly as much documentation of Paul experiencing plenty, abundance, abounding. Maybe the closest thing we have to Paul describing himself in this way is in one of the verses John will be preaching from next week, verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 18 of chapter 4, where he said, I have received full payment and more, I am well supplied. It's really one of the few places in the New Testament we read of Paul talking himself, talking to himself in such a way, of, of himself in such a way. Maybe he was well supplied because of the very gift that the Philippians had just sent to him and the generosity of that gift. Paul was aware that material lack poses a real challenge to us of our trust in God and the temptation to be anxious about where the next meal is coming from or how the bills will be paid. But Paul was also aware that material abundance does not always cure anxiety. We just become anxious about how we can keep what we have and not lose it. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, the wise man says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Paul understood that in the life of Israel, they forgot the Lord when they experienced the plenty of the promised land and, not, and didn't heed God's exhortation in Deuteronomy 8, where God himself warned them of the fact that when they got into the land and experienced you know, that flowing of milk and honey, that they'd be tempted to forget the God who provided such good things for them. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's clear that Paul learned a lot from the narrative in the, God's, in the Old Testament of God's provision of manna. In Exodus 16, each person was given enough food for one day, not too much, not too little. 
This is how Paul wanted to live. And he had learned from God that his attention should be on his service to Jesus and not on the provision of his own necessities. Paul had learned to be content in the fact that God would provide for him in times of want and in times of abundance. His contentment was not like the Stoic philosophers. Their contentment was described by the Greek word we now use for apathy. Paul is saying, God, I don't want to be apathetic. I don't simply want to be detached from any emotion. I want to be truly content in you. Stephen Fowle says this, Paul never seeks detachment from his circumstances. Rather, he has learned to narrate them as part of the story of God's economy of salvation. As a result, he is not an independent, rational soul buffeted here and there by fortune. Rather, he is a passionate participant in a divinely ordered drama. That brings us to verse 13, Paul's familiar conclusion. And I trust that the context that we've laid will help us to understand verse 13 in its proper context. You see, ripped from its context, Philippians 4.13 can become a Christianized version of one of the silly positive slogans with which we began today's sermon. Look, I can no longer expect to run a five-minute mile through Christ who strengthens me than I can expect to, for this to occur because I've, because I've put my mind to it. This is not an invitation to dream big, pursue great accomplishments, and just expect Jesus to help you achieve those dreams and goals. Can I just say, I'm not telling you don't dream big. I'm not telling you don't go after big accomplishments, but kind of stuffing this verse in the back pocket saying, you know, if I dream big and I want to do that for Jesus is going to make sure that it happens. I don't think that's what this verse is saying. In its proper context, Paul is saying that he has learned to be content in all circumstances, and the secret of this contentment is the strength that Jesus provides him. The stoic apathy coming from one's own inner strength is not a part of Paul's thinking. Paul speaks of something far, far better. Self-sufficiency has been turned into true Christian contentment, and the strength for this is found not inside of us, but outside of us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is an extension for Paul of the way he lived his entire life. Remember, in this book, he has told us, for me to live is Christ. He set before us in chapter 2 the amazing example of Christ's life, of love for others above himself. See, Paul is not consumed by his needs because his needs don't define him. 
and his life is not about his possessions. It was Jesus, by the way, who said in Luke 12 that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Paul lives this way. Austerity and poverty are not distressing, but they provide Paul with an opportunity to see God's provision for his life, often through the generosity of others like the Philippians. Paul understands that deprivation is often part of discipleship, and Paul is content knowing that fact. Abundance is an opportunity granted to us by God to show generosity to those around us who are still in need and to put others ahead of ourselves, that attitude that Jesus modeled for us in Philippians 2. Paul is saying in verse 13 that he can prevail over any and all circumstances through the strength that Jesus provides. If those circumstances involve want, he'll learn patience and trust God to supply his need in his time. If those circumstances involve plenty, he will learn humility and the joy of giving to others in need without strings attached. Benjamin Merkel paraphrases this verse in this way. I can have the victory over any situation through my union with Christ who continually strengthens me. I want to read that again because that's what this verse means. I can have the victory over any situation through my union with Christ who continually strengthens me. The word for strengthening in the Greek is endunamunti, indicating ongoing powerful activity. You might recognize the root word here, dunamas. Anybody get it? This is the English word for dynamite. Christ is my continual dynamite. He is my continual source of empowerment. And because he is continually strengthening me, I can have the victory over any situation that God places me in. At the end of Colossians chapter 1, Paul spoke of another secret or mystery that was the amazing truth of Christ in us, the hope of glory. He then said this, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I love that verse, and I love that verse in connection with Philippians 4.13. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. Paul labored for the sake of the gospel message, but his labor was with Christ's strength working in him. Peter picks up this exact same theme in 1 Peter 4.11 when he says that anyone who serves should serve by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified. It was Jesus who strengthened Paul to be able to be content in any situation. It was Jesus who gave Paul the energy and power to serve him. 
And it is God who supplies all of us with strength to serve him in the church. And the end result is that Christ is exalted and God receives the glory. Philippians 4.13 is for every Christian in every circumstance of their lives. Let me conclude by having you look at the front of program here, and I'd like to read for you the paraphrase of these verses from N.T. Wright, and then I just want to read again the uh, main point, which I actually wrote. N.T. Wright, Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I've been having a great celebration in the Lord because of your concern for me has once again burst into flower. You were, of course, concerned for me before, but you didn't have an opportunity to show it. I'm not talking about lacking anything. I've learned to be content with what I have. I know how to do without, and I know how to cope with plenty. In every possible situation, I've learned the hidden secret of being full and hungry, of having plenty and going without, and it is this. I have strength for everything in the one who gives me power. And again, the main point that I'd like us all to take away from the message this morning, because I am in Christ and Christ's spirit lives in me, I can prevail over any circumstance that would keep me from rejoicing, make me overly anxious, or rob me of my contentment. And I can do this because of the strength Jesus provides. So before we pray this morning, what circumstances are you facing today for which you need Jesus' help to prevail? Don't settle for the stoic apathy and detachment. Ask God for true Christian contentment in the midst of these circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it speaks to us right where we're at in life. Lord, I pray that whatever circumstances uh, are causing us right now in our lives to be concerned to find it hard to rejoice. Whatever circumstances are making us anxious, uh, I pray that you would help us to know the power of the resurrected Jesus, to prevail over those circumstances and to trust in you to provide for us in the midst of them. I pray that you would help us to do this not for our own glory, but that others would see the strength of Jesus in us and that we might be able to share with them uh, that our ability to go through these circumstances in life is not because of something in ourselves, but because of the help that Jesus provides. Be with each one of us and help us to trust you today. Help us to trust you this week and help us to know 
uh, that we can do all things through you who give us strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.